Oh, great God, we thank you for your word. And in our gratitude for your word, we acknowledge that we need you to help us as we hear your word. Oh, Lord, would you give us clarity? Would you give us a willingness to to grasp all that is here? Lord God, we pray that your spirit would, would be at work among us so that we would leave changed and that we would live lives worthy of the gospel to which you've called us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In a few weeks, on April the 27th to be exact, NFL football fans from across the country, at least the avid ones, will pay close attention to the NFL draft. I'm not an avid NFL fan. I I watch it sparingly, but I've always been interested in how this event takes place. It's it's seven rounds. It takes place over a period of three days. And throughout this process, the the 32 different NFL teams uh, decide upon which players they want to invest a large chunk of treasure because they know that their future is, in a sense, dependent upon the players they choose. Prior to this event, the NFL teams investigate the players that they're going to potentially choose, and it's called the NFL Combine, and you can do various searches on Google to to learn about this event, but I have always been intrigued by just how detailed the NFL Combine is for these players. They're tested on how many times they can bench press 225 pounds. They're tested on how fast they can run 10, 20, and 40-yard dashes, how fast they can do cone drills from various perspectives and under various uh, struggles and challenges. They're tested in the broad jump and the vertical jump. They're measured by their height, their weight, their chest size, their, their wingspan, and depending upon which position they play, even how long their fingers are. The players are interviewed, they're given personality tests, they're given IQ tests, they are scrutinized through the interviewing process, the the NFL owners will even go back and interview their college coaches, their high school coaches, their high school teammates, college teammates, and if the person has just a slight blemish on their character, they'll even go back and interview high school guidance counselors. By the way, if, if you're a member here at Trinity, we want you to know that we do the same type of scrutiny for our staff and elders. At the next Pulse meeting, we'll update you on Pastor Josh's 40-yard dash time and Mark's bench press uh, goals. It's going to be a great Pulse meeting. You know, it's not surprising to us that NFL teams put this much scrutiny and the players that they're going to choose. The average NFL player's career is, is just over three years. They invest a large chunk of treasure into these men. So therefore, the scrutiny is warranted. When, when I think of that particular scenario, and then we read the text that you just heard Jake read for us, it's quite the contrast that when the king, Jesus, comes to establish his kingdom The people that he chooses are not the dream team. They're not first-round picks. In fact, they would have never been invited to the combine. They're not known for having any sense of popularity. 
There's no IQ test administered by Jesus. There's no reliance upon um, their personality scores or no reliance upon the who's who of Palestinian life. There's not a test on their relational abilities. There's not an investigation into any childhood skirmishes they may have had. No questioning of guidance counselors. There's not any of this stuff. And yet our Lord entrusts with these 12 men the treasure of the gospel. The treasure of Him and what He's doing. It will be these men who will carry on in various ways the kingdom message Jesus is going to establish If you're visiting with us as a visitor here today, we want you to know that our pastor, Pastor Josh, is walking us through the Gospel of Mark. He's doing a great job, and it's been such an enriching study to hear how Jesus, through Mark's pen, is doing so many things that are arresting to our attention. In fact, Josh could probably go back and preach these messages again, which have been amazing, and we would still learn even more. The depths of what we have seen is so encouraging to us. And the text we've had read to us this morning is another one of those texts that is quite massive and weighty. There's more to this than meets the eye, actually. Mark has been answering for us a lot of questions. A lot of questions. In fact, sort of the question in the background throughout this text is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is Mark telling us? How is he answering That profound question. Well, Jesus is a king of a new kingdom. Jesus is the one who is pure through temptation. Jesus is the one who cleanses the unclean. Jesus is the one who forgives sinners. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus, or pardon me, Mark is telling us all of this about our Lord, and he's telling us even more in this text. And in this text, we find really two units of thought. I was so helped this week looking at Robert Stein's excellent commentary on this gospel. And he basically says, if I can summarize him, verse 7 begins sort of a new unit in Mark's thought. This is a a new era or a new change in the direction of Mark's thought. Something new is about to be told to us. There's a new substance to Mark's tapestry that he's painting for us of Jesus, which means then that the next little chunk that we also had read to us, verses 13 through 19, is Mark's new unit in this new line of thought about our Lord. Stein isn't alone in this statement. Commentators across the map are telling us that we have arrived at a new thought process in the Apostle Mark. So what is the big picture of this text? Dan actually mentioned it in his prayer earlier. The the big picture here is that Jesus is building a new people. He's building a people of God. And these apostles that he is appointing are going to be the forerunners of this kingdom. And from their own examples, we learn much about the people God is calling into this kingdom. I hope that that you can follow along with all that I see here in this text. I I certainly want to be clear, but I think if we we divide these two units of thought, we really see two different groups of people. In in the first unit of thought, we see those that are interested. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that down. This this first unit of thought, these verses 7 to 12, we, we really see those 
who are interested in our Lord. In Kent Hughes' commentary, he was a longtime pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He has a wonderful series, Preaching the Word commentary series. And when he comes to this section, he entitles it, Jesus, Jesus, Pressured Jesus. Of course, that's a parody off the, the old Christian song, Jesus, Jesus, Precious Jesus. But there's something happening here, isn't there? There is all kinds of pressure being applied to our Lord because there is all types of people who are interested in him. Some scholars, some scholars rather, call this the period of Jesus' popularity. There's no longer a local crowd following him. There are people from all across the region coming to him. Look there in your text. We have people coming from the north, from Tyre and Sidon. We have people coming from the southern parts in Jerusalem and Judea. We have people coming at Jesus from the east. Across the Jordan was Idumea, or in the Old Testament, the place of Edom. We have all of these people converging on Jesus because he is immensely popular at this time. And all of this attention, all of this interest is creating a lot of conflict. It's creating a lot of pressure on Jesus. I think we see it from three angles in the text. Number one, we see the pressure being applied to Jesus from his opposition. That's obvious in the text In fact, if you'll recall all that Pastor Josh has taught us in chapter 2, chapter 2 is a lot of things, but it's a chapter of conflict. Just just gaze back up there at verses 5, chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, that wonderful story of our Lord. And when he saw their faith, verse 5, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, Jesus' own actions answer that question. So there's conflict right there with the religious leaders. And it doesn't end. If you go down in verses 15 through 17, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is intense interest on behalf of his opposition, the religious elite toward our Lord. In verses 18 through 22 in chapter 2, there's pressure due to Jesus's understanding of fasting. In verses, or at the end of chapter 2, there's a conflict about what is acceptable on the Sabbath. And in chapter 3, verse 6, the the verse right before our text this morning, we have this very blunt statement on behalf of Jesus' opposition. They sought counsel how they might destroy him. All of this is converging on our Lord. These are the crowds who are following him. And a large chunk of these people who are following our Lord are interested in him. 
There's another group though, and, and they're obvious in the text as well. That we could just simply call the, the needy crowds. They're following him as well. In verse 8, the last half of verse 8, when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. We can hardly blame them. We can hardly blame them at all. Because of his miraculous works, his popularity was certainly increasing among those who simply thought, if I can, if I can just be near this man, perhaps it would do me some good. Popularity often brings increased challenges. I did not read the whole news story, but I saw recently a headline. Some of you perhaps watched the very popular show, Fixer Upper, with Joanna and Chip Gaines. Uh, if you don't know the show, basically he's a talented in construction and a little crazy, and she's talented in design and puts up with him, and so the, the show is about them working on rehabbing houses together, and it's a mix of humor and creativity and all these wonderful things. Well, it's set in Waco, Texas, and the brief article that I saw, the headline was, how the town is coping with the popularity of this show. All the businesses are getting increased revenue, but what does increased revenue do? <laughs> Makes your tax rates increase as well. They're having to build parking lots for the, the big store that they've built. All sorts of conflict has come to the town because of good popularity. And that's exactly what Jesus is experiencing here. He has to tell his disciples, find me a boat. Mark specifically says why. Or they're going to crush him. Not that they want to destroy him. Certainly the religious leaders do. But the crowd just wants to be near him. Mark isn't the only one who tells us this. In fact, if you've read John, John chapter 6, we have another narrative of Jesus, large crowd, feeding the thousands in a miraculous way. And what happens? He has to get in a boat. And he specifically says why they're after him. He says, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Similarly, here in Mark 3, the reason they're after him is not so much what he's declaring to them about himself, but about what they can receive for their need. And again, we can hardly blame them. But all of this rising popularity is bringing pressure from those that are interested. There's a last little group. Do you see it? That's the demonic group. They're interested as well. Verse 11, and when the, ever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I've always been puzzled by, by that. Scholars call this the, the messianic secret Pastor Josh explained this beautifully a few weeks ago when we dealt with the same type of statement. Why is Mark, why is Jesus rather, so interested in a hidden hero or a secret savior? Why is he wanting to suppress the announcement of who he is? 
What, what is going on behind all of this? Certainly, we can, see, we can say at least on the bottom level that Jesus is wanting to show his power to silence the demonic forces. That, that's obvious, but I think there's something much more going on behind this command to be silent. Most assuredly, Jesus wanted time to teach. He wanted time to live. He wanted time to impact. He wanted time to die. He wanted time to rise from the dead. The demons are inappropriate heralds of who Jesus is. They are unworthy communicators of our Lord's majesty. You see, Jesus doesn't want people proclaiming facts about him as much as he wants transformed lives explaining to others what they've experienced through him. He will reveal his identity in his own time in his own way, and through those whom he chooses. How did Jesus deal with all of this pressure? The pressure from the opposition? The pressure from the crowds? The pressure from the demonic forces? How did he deal with all of this converging on him? In two words, we can say it. He prayed. He prayed. You say, how do we know that? Well, we have to leave Mark and go to Luke to see this. If you want to go there, you can, or just trust me. In Luke's account of this very thing in Luke 6, we have Luke adding this bit of detail for us in verses 12 and 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer before God. And when when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from the twelve whom he named apostles. How did our Lord deal with the intense pressure of all that was going on in his life? He dismissed himself from it to pray. What would that look like in our own lives? I can only speculate from my own circumstances, but I, here's what that would look like in our life. He turned off the television. He ignored his cell phone. He forgot about Facebook. He put away his to-do list, and he humbled himself before his father. We might think to ourselves, why is the Son of God praying? Why does Jesus find himself, the second person of the, the Holy Trinity, why is he going off and staying up all night? Shouldn't he have just rested? We must remember, dear brothers and sisters, that in his incarnation, our Lord lived as a human being. He thought as a human being. He engaged in relationships like we do. He worked like you and I do. He slept. He experienced our world in time and space and limitations. And he, with us, knew what it was to be like as a son of Adam. He did not lose his divine attributes, but most certainly in some way they were suspended as he ministered to those who were in his midst. We don't know everything Jesus said in this prayer. That's actually not the point. We can speculate. We know what he's doing the next morning. But the point is, in his greatest time of need, he didn't look for a quick fix. He just wanted God. He just wanted God. How many of us need to hear that message this morning? Some of you are under incredible amount of pressure now. From health challenges, 
from struggles at work, from collisions in your own relationships, perhaps even your own marriage. And what you need to hear is that the fix is actually to humble yourself before Almighty God and pour out your needs to Him. When the pressure rises, the godly humble themselves before our great God. Because it is in that moment that we find our, the strength in our moment of weakness. You see, folks, in reality, our devotional life becomes routine. Our witness becomes cold. Our words are rendered powerless unless and until our lives are lived in dependence upon prayer or dependence upon God through our prayer. There's a lot of interest in Jesus in this text, and it creates a lot of pressure. But there's also another group in this text, and that's that other chunk of verses, the 13 through 19 section. And we would just simply call these groups the called. You could call them the chosen. They're certainly those who are interested, but now we come across those who are called. And it is through the called that our Lord will sovereignly work and demonstrate what He is up to now at this point in His ministry. Through His sovereign will, He will work through the called to reorient all the thinking about Him and what God is doing through Him. I I have several things I want to say here. I want to go quickly, but we also don't want to miss the substance of what is here in this section on the called those whom God has called here, let's at least acknowledge that by calling them, Jesus was demonstrating His sovereign desire. That's number one. By calling them, Jesus was demonstrating and displaying His sovereign desire. In what way? He says in verse 13, He went up to the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired. And they came to Him. Friends, there is considerable, there's considerable emphasis on this fact in the New Testament. For example, in John 6, Jesus says, have I not chosen you, the twelve? In John 15, we have it twice. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and bear fruit. A few verses later, but I have chosen you out of the world. Luke's comments at the beginning of Acts, when he says this, that Jesus had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus has chosen them, and he was delighted to do so. These men were not asked if they wanted to follow Jesus. He did not invite them or plead with them. He summoned them by name. He knew them. He knew them intimately. He knew everything there was to know about them. And he summoned them to him. In fact, friends, there's nothing in our Gospels that give us any indication that these men were sort of at a point in life where they would have just chosen anything. In other words, these men were doing what they always did. They were tending to their business. They were tending to their swindling of money. They were, tend- they were just living life. And Jesus came and reoriented everything about their lives because it brought him pleasure to do so. 
Mark reports that Peter and Andrew and James and John were just fishermen going about their fishing business when Jesus interrupted their lives. Saul was just minding his own business as well when Jesus knocked him off of his donkey and changed his life forever. And you recall what Jesus said to Ananias, go see Paul for he is a chosen vessel of mine that he may display, that he may tell of my works. Acts chapter 9. God took the initiative and called these men. And it brought him great delight. There's a lot of discussion among faith families, this one perhaps and others, about this whole choosing business and God choosing and us choosing and how do we make sense of all of this. Those are good conversations and certainly helpful and ones we should be careful with. There's no question about it. But make no mistake about it, friends, however you work through that, and you should, at the end of the day, we only follow Jesus by God's grace. We only follow him because he takes the initiative for us to follow him, and it brings him pleasure to do so. Don't you love this picture of Jesus? He's not irritated. He's not, oh... Where's my first rounders? Who had the best, who had the best score in the 40? He simply sees men out of a large group of disciples and they're the ones that made his heart delight. Dear friends, if you are a child of God, you should know and be comforted today that when God set his love upon you through Christ, it brought great delight to your Savior. In agony, he died for you, but in joy, he rose for you. That is no wimpy Jesus. We also see his sovereignty in what he does with those whom he chooses, right? Secondly, we see the sovereign display of Jesus' authority in their life because he appoints them. He appoints them as apostles, Verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles. They certainly were already disciples. You have to sort of put it all together to see that he's already called these men to be in what we might call a group of disciples. How many were there? We don't know. There were at least 12. There were more than that because he chose these 12 from out of that group. And this group that he has chosen are to be his apostles. We think of Isaiah hearing from our Lord, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And of course the response is, well, here am I, send me. In other words, I will be sent by you, I will be your ambassador, I go in your stead. The sent ones are on a special mission. They have a charge, they have a commission that whatever the sovereign is asking them or telling them or commissioning them to do, that will be what they do. They have authority, and they have the authority of the one who sent them. This is why Jesus can say later on, by the way, in Matthew's account of this, Matthew 10, he says this. He says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you see that? These are extensions of our Lord's ministry. He says to them in John 20, as the Father sent me, even so I send you. So these men were uniquely empowered to represent our Lord. They would be agents of revelation. It is through these men 
that the testimony of our Lord would spread. You and I are beneficiaries of their faithfulness and of their willingness to go into hard places and preach the gospel. And their willingness to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit and write down what God wanted us to know about him and about his dealings with man. We can never thank God enough for his ways. This helps us, I think, understand why Jesus tells the demons to be quiet, doesn't it? Who do you think Jesus wants spreading his message? The demons who cause chaos or the apostles who follow their Lord? Jesus wanted the witness of changed lives to be those who were spreading his transforming message. And he had things he wanted them to do. It's interesting to me how scholars split these up. You can either call it two things or three things. The first thing is obvious. He wanted them to be with him. He says that explicitly. He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. Depending on how you split up the second part, some say preach is number two. Some say that casting out demons is number three. Some just combine two and three and say by their preaching, they're going to be doing the casting out. It's irrelevant how we split it up. We see that he appoints them for a purpose though. First, they have to be with him. Jesus doesn't want anybody to talk about Christianity as a car salesman, or I shouldn't say that if you're a car salesman, I'm sorry. He doesn't want us to teach about Christianity as a salesman would. He doesn't want cheap tricks and gimmicky sales tactics. He wants people who lived and breathed with him. He wants witnesses to what he said and did. He wants them to attest to his sovereign will in, his, in their lives. Don't you remember in Acts 4? I love this text. I love it. I love it. I love it. When, when, when uh, Peter and John are being questioned by the authorities, do you remember what they said about Peter and John? They aren't saying this about themselves. Their opposition is saying this about them. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What a statement to be said about his people. And Jesus is anointing, pardon me, appointing them to be his apostles to be with him. To be with him. Secondly, to preach, to cast out demons. They were sent to herald to proclaim Jesus' message to the world. They were given something to say. They were sent out to say it. And they were given the power to say it in the most intense opposition they could potentially face. Dear friends, regardless of what you do for a living, regardless of your status in life at this moment, we can learn much from our Lord here. Do you catch how Jesus models for his apostles everything he's calling them to do? He models it for them. Friends, dear church family, the lessons here for discipleship for Christian living, are limitless. Husbands in the room, if you want your wife to submit to you, perhaps we should model for them how we submit to the Lord. Hey, Christian moms in the room, you want your daughter to grow up and be modest in dress 
in appearance, in language, in attitude, then it's your duty to model that for them. How can you possibly expect what you don't model? Hey, dads, if we want our children to grow up and be good neighbors, I'm not talking about the kind of neighbors that just say hi when you see the people, but actually serve others because you're serving the Lord. Then we can't just talk about it in the abstract. We have to do it in real life. We have to model that for them. Dear church, if we want our communities, our lost friends, our lost colleagues, our lost family members to really believe that what we know about our Lord is life-altering, that we have to live lives that express that the gospel is life-altering. We have to demonstrate that for them. As Peter and these others are doing in Acts 4, they just knew that these men had been with Jesus. We must always keep our finger on what are we modeling for our children? What are we modeling for those with whom we teach, to whom we teach. All of us have, some larger, some smaller. Even in, these, even in the list of apostles, right? There's some sense of authority, right? These apostles have authority over the disciples from whom they've been chosen. But even within the apostles, there are these stages, aren't there? Doesn't it seem like there's three who are over the others? And in the three, doesn't it seem like Peter is probably the number one guy? And doesn't it seem like Peter and the rest of the apostles are under the authority of Jesus? Doesn't it seem like Jesus is under the authority of his father to do his father's will? Don't we see the sort of pattern of shepherding and mentoring and modeling for others? We don't know much about some of these apostles, and that's okay, because some of us will not leave indelible impressions on planet earth where people will remember us in 200 years, but we can leave indelible impressions on the people with whom God puts in our lives and model for them how Christ can change dead, cold hearts. And it really doesn't matter how wide the circle of your influence is, so long as you see the circle of your influence and you model for them what you call them to be, what you want them to be, what you desire them to be. We see thirdly that Jesus is building a new Israel. He is sovereignly choosing these people to build a new kingdom, to build a new family of God. He says in verse 16, he appointed the 12. He appointed the 12. It is not insignificant, as you all know, that he chose 12. If I were to ask you how many countries there are in our world right now, my guess is that you're like me and you'd have to Google it like I did yesterday. By the way, the answer is how you view Taiwan. Okay? There are 195 countries, according to the U.S. government, because we don't recognize Taiwan. Taiwan recognizes themselves, and so they would say there are 196 countries in our world. If I were to ask you how many electoral college votes you need to become president, most of us know, because we're just sort of in the aftershocks, and that's probably the best word, of an election, that you need 270 electoral college votes. Some of you may not have known that, and that's okay. But most every church-going person knows that there were 12 tribes of Israel. If you just happened to visit Sunday school 20 years ago, you probably still remember that. What is so significant about Jesus doing this, and what is he doing here? Dear friends, he's building a new family. He's building a new Israel. 
The choosing and the commissioning of these 12 is a judgment upon the very people who've just rejected him, namely the religious leaders. He's telling them that their paradigm, their understanding is wrong. Remember back in verse 6, they want to destroy him, and it is now from this point Jesus is going to correct their false understanding. They're not going to embrace it. They will kill him. But his kingdom will never end. What's he doing here by choosing these 12? It's just interesting, isn't it, that, for example, in Revelation 21, when John sort of tries to wrap his mind around everything that God is doing in the future, John says that these 12 will be memorialized in eternity forever with their names embedded in this new city. In Luke 22, do you remember the little, the little context of this is them asking Jesus, hey, who is the greatest among your apostles? And of course, that leads to Jesus saying that these will sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the new leaders in Jesus' kingdom. This is the new Israel of the new covenant. They are sovereignly chosen to be representatives of what Jesus is doing. This new Israel will be displayed in a variety of ways. You all know that. You know this has to be expanded upon, most certainly in Paul's letters. I'm thinking of Galatians particularly. But don't you know, or don't you notice rather, even in Acts as it begins, how important it is to replace Judas? And what were the qualifications that Matthias had to meet? The resurrection, and what else? The one we just talked about. That he had been with Jesus. They had to have the twelfth person there. And the next section of this text, pardon me, of Mark's, of this chapter, Mark talks about the family, doesn't he? There's this collision. It was briefly read today. At least two verses of it were read where Jesus has this conflict with his family. What, what is Jesus teaching there? A lot of things, most certainly. I can't wait to hear how all of that is taught to us. But most certainly one thing he's teaching us is the family of God is much different than tracing back your bloodline. The family of God are those who are in Christ. And these 12 are going to be the representatives of this new family. There's so much more that can be said about that, but we we must bear on and see, fourthly, that Jesus is sovereign in the diversity of the people he has called. Just look at these names. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Typically, if you have any background in church life, whether in this country or others, particularly if you go across Europe and look at the cathedrals, or even some of the what we might call the stained glass type of churches, it's not uncommon to see these men pictured and displayed for us in stained glass. These men throughout church history have just become highly revered people. Cities, churches, hospitals are named after these people. Popes, Pope John Paul and, and others are named after these men. But what is so remarkable about them is how unremarkable they are. 
They're not the highest and the noblest of men. They're not the most educated, as Acts 4 just mentioned. They're not highly skilled. The truth is, they are basically only distinguished by one thing, and that is that they're just ordinary men that Jesus calls into himself. Only one of them was probably wealthy, and that wealth was accumulated through what we might call shady means. We cannot look at them as incompetent men. After all, some of them were business leaders. But altogether, this group was not first-round draft picks. They were not the dream team. They would not have even been invited to try out. If you were looking for all of the things that we look for in professional athletes, that we look for in our job boards, these types of things, that is not uncommon in God's way of dealing with things, is it? I was just meditating last night, trying to wrap my mind around this text, and I just thought of Gideon in the Old Testament. It's much to read. We can't read it all, but you remember how Gideon was called by our Lord to confront the Midianites, and his response was probably like many of ours. He thought he needed, God's called me to do this. I need a big army to accomplish this great task. God said, go. In this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. Isn't it obvious throughout scripture that God loves to take the weak to show off his strength? What Gideon had to learn was he didn't need a big army. He just needed God. And with these 12 men that our Lord chooses, a diverse group of men, he sovereignly displays his power through all of their weaknesses. On the one end of the spectrum, you have Simon the Zealot. Some, I don't know if this is just preacher language, but I've often, always rather, been told of him or been, it's been said of him that he was, in a sense, a domestic terrorist. He, in a sense, John MacArthur at least, argues that he was one of those guys who would have walked around town with a dagger in his pocket because it was his desire to overthrow the, overthrow the Roman occupation. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, who was certainly not popular among those who had to pay him taxes because he, at least we can perceive, would not have had just models of attaining their money. We know Peter from church history. Isn't it it significant to look at Peter's life and see the highs, right? He was there. He was present at the transfiguration. Just wrap your mind around that for a moment. And then remember that he denied the Lord. Think of all that he saw. And in the moment when the pressure was on, as Jesus is doing here, it wasn't run off to pray. It was to deny the Lord. We think of Andrew. More than likely is the person who introduced Peter to Jesus. He was also a fisherman. If you look through church tradition, he was martyred in Greece because he was convinced that the Greeks needed to know about our Lord. 
We have James and John, these two brothers. I love their nicknames, Sons of Thunder. I know people like this. Why are they called this? Well, you have to go to Luke 9 to read this story. But basically, the Samaritans didn't want anything to do with what Jesus had for them. And their response was, Jesus, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Can you, do you see that scene in your mind? Lord, let's just nuke these guys. And these are the people Jesus is calling in this monumental task of spreading his message, living with him, watching him, being mentored by him, to be sent by him to preach, and with the authority of him to cast out the most vile and demonic of oppression. We have Bartholomew, sometimes probably called Nathaniel in John's gospel, who Jesus said about him, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Philip was very similar to Thomas, yet Thomas is the one who gets the bad rap, but it was Philip, Philip who said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father in John 14. And if you do, it will be enough for us. And Jesus' response was very similar to his response to Thomas. Have I not been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Matthew, of course, a gospel author. Levi, the tax collector he is. Thomas, of course, the doubter we know so much about or at least we are well aware of. Thaddeus, we know that he was a preacher. We don't know a whole lot about him. Simon the Zealot, I've already mentioned. James the Less was probably short in stature and throughout church history, maybe just insignificant. We don't know much about this man. And that is okay. Because he was used by our Lord. They had their faults. They had their character flaws. And they carried on our Lord's ministry as he commanded them to. Don't you see in this text, Jesus beginning his church. I'm not saying that that word's used here, but it's very clear that Jesus is building something. Jesus is building something, and their message is, in a sense, the foundation of what is going to be built upon it, the great people of God who are called by the sovereign Savior. Folks, there's so much to say here as, as we look in our own lives. I've been around churches long enough to know that so often... So often, the Peters, the Peter types in a church, can intimidate the James the Lesser types in church. Forget these names for a moment. Sometimes in a faith family, you can have people who don't feel like they're useful. They don't feel like their gifts matter. They may not be as prominent as someone else. Or they don't feel like that they can be acknowledged or used in some way. If that is your belief, I hope you will know that this is a problem for you. Because you can't look at this text and conclude that. Jesus is intentionally using the ordinary. He is intentionally using those that aren't in the draft at all. He's intentionally using people like you and I to accomplish his will. So this is a great time for you to ask yourself, if it's true that Jesus can use these men, and he does, how can he and how is he using me? 
I sit under his word by the elders, from the elders. I meet with God's people. I am, in a sense, being, I'm modeled, is modeled for me what discipleship looks like. I have content here. I have fellowship here. What am I doing out there? Or even in here with all that God is providing for me? It's a legitimate question that every Christian in the room has to ask. Isn't it awesome, and I'm using that word on purpose, how Jesus can take their mess and turn it into a message? Jesus can take the mess of these men, and they were a mess, and give a message of grace. The same is true in your own life. The last thing we'll see here is the name we've obviously left off, right? And that is that Jesus, in choosing these men, is showing his sovereignty over evil. He's showing his sovereignty over evil. Jesus knew, according to John 6, Jesus knew from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Yet he called Judas to follow him anyway. He called Judas to listen to the Sermon on the Mount, to be in those private conversations, to be in charge of the money bag. He called Judas to watch him walk on water, to experience his miraculous power, to see transformed lives. John Piper, a few years ago, wrote a book called Spectacular Sins. And this doesn't mean spectacular in the sense in a good way, but spectacular in the sense of influential. And in that little book, he he talks about various spectacular sins, the fall of Adam, for example, the Tower of Babel, the selling of Joseph into slavery, and he spends a good chunk of time on Judas. And he says, and I quote Piper here, my aim is to show that sin and evil, no matter how spectacular, never nullify the decisive, Christ-exalting purposes of God. These spectacular sins succeed in making God's gracious purpose come to pass, end quote. Why did God, or pardon me, why did Jesus choose Judas? Some may wrongly think, well, Jesus didn't know that Judas was going to betray him. But we dare not think that. That's just ridiculous. It tells us he knew. John 13, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into when he chose Judas. It was God's sovereign plan to use this man's betrayal for the world's good. In what way? Dear friend, in the commission of Judas's evil, evil itself is overcome. Because it is through that evil that this spectacular sin brings about God's redemptive plan. What an awesome warning this is, isn't it? That you can have the greatest Christian privileges and yet end up hating Jesus. Privileges alone have never saved anyone. He was called by Christ to be an apostle, and it took just car cushion change 
for him to change his mind or really to reveal that he never believed in him anyway. Position has no saving merit, which is why this text is so radical, isn't it? Jesus is calling these apostles who will be spreading his message and one of these 12 is going to be used by God to advance this message. But in a way he never thought, at least at this point in the text. Because our Lord, through this man's betrayal, will die for his people and express his sovereign love there. There's certainly much we can speculate. There's certainly much we can ask about Judas's role in all of this, but at least let's take this away. God is working far in far greater ways than we'll ever know. And God used this man as an example for us. As an example for us in many, many ways. But I hope you see God's sovereignty over evil. He betrayed the Lord and God's plan prevailed. He could not thwart Jesus's message and his ministry of salvation. Evil can't prevail, friends. That's actually something to rejoice in in this text because the opposition gets stronger and Jesus's power is demonstrated even more and more and more. You caught those last two verses, right, that Jake read. They went, he went home. There's another crowd there. They could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. (laughs) The application of this, at least this little part, and it will be talked about in much more depth next week. But at least here we can say, Jesus is not saying our earthly families don't matter. Jesus is saying that the, the family of God that he's building are those who are in him. Those who believe his message. And as we see even from these that he's chosen to be his apostles, he chooses all kinds to be a part of his family. And it's shocking here in this text. Dear friends, there there are fans of Jesus in this text, and there are followers of Jesus in this text. There are the interested, and there are the called. It is to your advantage. In fact, I am summoning you, I'm begging you right now to look into your own life and say, am I just interested in Jesus because he does great things? That's what the crowd wanted, right? Am I interested in Jesus because I might can receive some of these things from him? What a deal I can make. Is that the attitude of my heart? Or have I seen him? Have I experienced him? Have I been called by him? Have I been appointed by him? Sent out by him to live for him? We find ourselves somewhere in this crowd. We are either the interested or we are the called. May the Lord's Spirit awaken our hearts today so that we would be a collection of saints who've been called by our great Lord and our great Savior to live in light of the gospel because he's a great king and he's building a great family. Would you pray with me?